Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. An upward movement this past week. We'll hear from PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo about how the grain and oil seeds markets were moving over the past week or so. It's the time of year that livestock producers are considering what type of forage to seed. Chelsea Siemens, the agri-environmental specialist for the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture in Kindersley, will provide us with some advice on that front. And warm spring weather has brought better rail performance in recent weeks. We'll hear from Milt Poirier. With QGI Consulting, he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers biomeal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. Another growing season is approaching. Demand for farmland of all sizes is high, from single quarters to full-size operations. Sean Prahitka is your Remax Blue Chip Realty Ag Specialist, capable of getting you the best possible results for your land. From his years of experience in agriculture and real estate, Sean is a farmer helping farmers and can guide you through every step. Now is the time. Call Sean Prahitka with Remax Blue Chip Realty at 621-9798. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain markets were showing upward movement this past week. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Pacallo says canola is up over $13 per metric ton and wheat has risen 19 cents a bushel from one week ago. Looking at canola to start here, we have seen it uh, turn a bit of a corner higher, which I'm sure producers are, are happy to see. The The May contract is up approximately $13.5 a ton here this morning at 757 a ton. Last week, we did see the contract low get put in at 715 And again, so we have round of rebounded quite a bit from there and talking again with producers about new crops so that's definitely been been a hot subject then looking at the Minneapolis wheat futures side of things, we have seen a, a bit of a positive trend starting to form as well here too. The May contract up about 19 and a quarter cents a bushel. Today sitting at approximately $8.76. So last week on Friday, quite a large day. Today, Monday, another, again, strong day as well too. We've seen some potential just 
positive outside market forces. Uh, a Russian business newspaper reported that Russian government could recommend a temporary halt uh, in wheat and sunflower exports. But many traders believe that Russia really has no plans to halt exports. So again, it might be a bit of hearsay, but combination of uncertainty from the Black Sea region plus a drier than outlook uh, in the winter wheat areas in the U.S. have been helping to support wheat have a bit of a rally here. So that's that's positive news, I would say, for for producers going forward. And then for the canola front here, we have seen old crop soybeans and meal appear to be putting in at least a short-term low. Bit of an extreme oversold condition on both the soy markets and canola. I believe we are seeing a bit of a rebound here now. We've actually seen a of a farmer selling in Argentina with their poor crop and the currency very weak is seen as a factor which could actually drive global meal production down even more and that's again could be potentially positive for for canola in the long run. Bacallo provides an outlook for the rest of this week and beyond. Well this week here again we're putting in some positive technical signs on the charts here today on on most grains. We'll see if that can continue. Again, I've been talking with producers about their new crop plans, hedged, you know, some of their new crop obviously would have liked to done more in hindsight, but uh, that's nobody has the crystal ball. I I like to tell clients and what I'm kind of looking at here now is if, if producers are looking to be selling here soon, let's say they may have canola still in the bin. This is when you may want to consider replacing it using futures or options, depending on if it's suitable for them. So that's one strategy I've definitely kind of come up here. Adam Piccolo is a commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. Cereals Canada recently commissioned a report to understand how much of an impact the cereal grain sector has on the Canadian economy. The report was completed by LMC International, an independent economic consulting firm that focuses on agriculture and the agribusiness sector. To get a comprehensive and detailed view of the sector, the report analyzed data from four cereal crops, wheat, barley, oats and durum. As a result of the report, it was found that cereal grain is the second highest industry in terms of economic impact, with a total of $68.8 billion. Cereal grain only follows the oil and gas industry, which has a total impact of $128.1 billion. Behind the cereal grain industry for economic impact is communication services at $66.1 billion, beef cattle at $51.6 billion, and canola at $29.9 billion. It's looking like your green salad is going to be a bit more costly. Experts say lettuce prices are likely to rise next month as a key California farming area becomes the latest example of extreme weather's effect on the food chain. 
The Salinas Valley has had severe rain and storms since the beginning of the year, flooding fields and delaying planting. Now that's the same valley where disease struck crops last fall, which sent the price of lettuce on Canadian shelves soaring as supply dwindled. While estimates vary on the flooding's effect on lettuce prices, John Bishop of produce distributor Fresh Start Foods says there could be a supply gap that lasts several months. He and others say Canada and the U.S. are seeing more investment in indoor farming to fill those gaps left by increasingly volatile growing seasons. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. A court has heard arguments on Ottawa's decision to restrict the movement of Prince Edward Island seed potatoes, although it's not known when a decision will be handed down. During a hearing last week, lawyers for the PEI Potato Board called the federal order an overreach that caused catastrophic damage to the seed potato industry and said it wants the order revoked. The order that stopped the transport of seed and fresh potatoes after potato wort was found in some island fields was lifted last April, but seed potatoes are still prohibited from leaving the island. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says that it is committed to helping contain potato wort as well as maintaining trading partners' confidence in Canadian potatoes. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has revoked a primary control zone for the highly contagious avian flu in B.C. It says this happens when post-outbreak surveillance is completed and no further cases of avian influenza are detected. The agency's website showed the number of birds that have been impacted in the province as of Wednesday was 3,657,000. It says that while the virus affects birds, there is no evidence it can be passed to humans who consume poultry products. Farmers in the Cowichan Valley of B.C. say they are losing crops and dealing with property and field damage caused by Roosevelt elk. The threatened species typically moves to lower elevations during the winter months, searching for more plentiful food. But in the last few years, some herds have been staying on farmland in the Duncan area year-round. A University of Alberta research project intended to reduce human elk conflict in the Cowichan Valley started in August of 2021 and aims to test deterrence to keep elk out of farms. The researchers say they hope to share their work with farmers and the provincial government as a way to help with the management of Roosevelt elk. Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray says a decision not to renew licenses for 15 open-net Atlantic salmon farms in the Discovery Islands of B.C. last month was difficult but necessary. Her office issued the statement after one of several companies operating farms in the area off Vancouver Island filed an application in federal court seeking a judicial review of her decision. Maui Canada West is seeking an order quashing or setting aside the decision and a declaration that Murray's determination was unreasonable, invalid and unlawful. But Murray's statement says the government is taking a precautionary approach to help ensure the well-being of wild salmon as recent science suggests uncertainty about risks posed to the species from the area's farms. And that's today's AgReview. Please stay tuned. GX and Agriculture will return in one minute's time. Welcome back to GX and Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and minus 16 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at the top of the hour. 
It's the time of year that livestock producers are considering what type of forage to seed. Chelsea Siemens is the agri-environmental specialist for the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture in Kindersley. Although it still feels like winter in most parts of Saskatchewan, spring is just around the corner. If you're planning to seed perennial forages for hay or pasture this spring, the first step to successful forage establishment is deciding which species to seed. Start by considering your desired end use, whether for hay or pasture. Not all forages are suited to both grazing and hay production due to their structure and regrowth habits. For example, meadow brome grass is most appropriate for grazing since it regrows rapidly but has basal leaves that can be challenging to cut for hay. Next, consider the desired season of use and which species will produce the best combination of forage quality and yield at that time of year. The forage's peak productivity should align with the time of year that it will be cut or grazed. For example, crested wheatgrass is at its best quality during early spring, while Russian wild rye maintains good forage quality into late summer or fall. When choosing a mix of two or more forages to plant in a blend, consider how the timing and productivity of each species will work within the mix. Planting a mixture of two or more forages can be a more efficient use of soil moisture and nutrients and can result in more consistent forage production throughout the season, as each species production peaks at different times. Mixed stands may also last longer and are less susceptible to insect and disease pressure. However, single species may be easier to seed, have more options for chemical weed control, and the timing of harvest for hay is more easily predicted. An important consideration is to match the forage species to the site they will be seeded in. Soil type, available moisture, salinity, and the potential for spring flooding will determine which species will thrive and persist in that location. Be aware of the areas surrounding the new forage stand and recognize that aggressively creeping grasses such as smooth brome grass will spread from where they are planted. Also consider the desired lifespan of the stand. Some forages such as slender wheatgrass are shorter lived than others like tall wheatgrass. Whether seeding a single species or a mixture, Selecting forage species that support production goals and are well adapted to the area will help ensure a productive, long-lived forage stand. For more information on forage selection, contact your local regional services office or call the Agriculture Knowledge Centre at 1-866-457-2377. That's Chelsea Siemens, the Agri-Environmental Specialist for the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture in Kindersley. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for April closed at 164.90 today. That's up 190. June live cattle closed at 158.87, up 227. April feeder cattle closed at 197.62, up 282. May feeder cattle closed at 201.37, up 382. April lean hogs closed at 78.62, up 145. May lean hogs closed at 86.72, up 105. And that's the livestock market conditions. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Warm spring weather has brought better rail performance in recent weeks. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting. And he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition, a consortium of grain companies and producer organizations. He comments on railway performance for weeks 30 to 32 
of the current crop year. Certainly, we have seen a definite upward trajectory for both CN and CP over the last three weeks. We've seen order fulfillment performance for both railways steadily improve week after week, culminating, frankly, in week 32 with the best performance we've seen from both railways in a number of months, maybe as far back as November. So that's a very positive thing. One might argue that that's, you know, concurrent with the end of winter and the arrival of spring. And uh, much like the robins show up to make their nests, the railway performance gets better. But whatever, we'll take what we've got. Really, you know, we've seen pretty broad improvement right across the board. And they've done it a couple of ways. We've been talking for a lot of weeks now about car spotting in the country and the fact that they weren't spotting enough cars meant they weren't meeting demand, which had two outflows coming from that, which is poor order fulfillment performance, but then also a growing backlog of outstanding orders. And, you know, we've talked about how big those outstanding order counts have gotten, particularly for CP and the fact that they've been kind of dragging them through the grain year all the way back to uh, the fall. And the one thing really that changed in the last three weeks is the fact that they've been spotting more cars. Uh, weeks 30, 31 and 32 for both railways have been three of the best weeks since late fall, early December with respect to car spotting. If we look at week 32, which is uh, most recently completed, you know, CN and CP together spotted 9,000 cars in the country in week 32. And they hadn't even come close to that number since the middle of December, when we were pretty much at peak shipment season. So that's a huge improvement. The other thing, frankly, and you know, they all kind of go hand in hand, but service across different aspects of the system have improved whether we look at corridors or we look at individual shipper service levels generally the trend has been positive what we were seeing for a lot of this year was you know very inconsistent performance for both railways you know they do very well in one corridor one week but not so well in the others or some group of shippers would get very good service, but a bunch of shippers would not. And when that all came out in the wash, overall performance wasn't very good. So over the last three weeks, we've certainly seen improvement in both those areas. Uh, shipper service is, is more consistent than it has been. We still got some pockets where, you know, some shippers are not seeing uh, very good levels of service, but I would say those are exceptions at this point, as opposed to the norm. Corridor performance has been much better, much more consistent. And for both CN and CP, you know, the trick for good performance is always to do well in their major corridors. And at this time of year, that's Vancouver and Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert, obviously, just for CN. But performance in both of those principal corridors um, has improved notably uh, over the last three weeks. So you put all those things together. And, and performance has just been better. And the outflow of that, you know, is tangible. What we've seen is outstanding order counts have come down a long ways. They were very high through the winter, particularly for CP. And the fact that more cars are getting spotted 
you know, has helped them whittle away that backlog, particularly for CP, you know, just to throw a number out there, coming out of week 32, CP has an outstanding order count of 700 cars and, and people who haven't necessarily been following this, you know, week to week to week, like we do, would say, wow, that's a big number. But if you look back over the 17 weeks prior to week 32, so weeks 15 to 31, CP was averaging 1,400 outstanding orders every week. So to have a week where they're at 700 is, you know, pretty remarkable improvement. Now the trick will be, can they keep that going? And and we can talk about that a little bit, but you know, back to back to back weeks of good performance has been a challenge. We have seen three good weeks, so that's a very positive sign. If we could see a fourth and a fifth week to keep the trajectory going, that would be a better sign. The other thing that that's that's happened, which we've just talked about, is that order fulfillment performance has improved. And and that's a direct outflow of more cars being spotted. So less cars are being dedicated to outstanding orders. Outstanding orders are going down. More cars are being applied against current week demand. And all those things just build on one another. So we've had a good three week run, you know, challenges still, I think ahead. Spring brings a different set of challenges for the railways when we get into, you know, melting season and avalanche season and stuff like that. But I think good reason to be uh, perhaps optimistic at this stage. Poirier says the improvement can be credited to good spring weather conditions so far. Yeah, I think so. And, and if you look at history, you know, the, the, the patterns are fairly consistent. Uh, winter is always tough. Uh, the question really is every year is how tough will winter be? It's not always directly um, a, a function of, you know, cold and, and snow necessarily. But we do know that, you know, the railway's commitments for spotting cars go down because they say in winter operations slow down. And certainly that's true. But when spring comes around, a couple things happen. The weather is warmer. Operating conditions are better. The railway commitments for car spotting go up. So starting this month, you know, CN and CP are back to their 5,300 or whatever car a week commitment, as opposed to the 4,500 car a week commitment over the last four months. And it's pretty consistent, you know. I mean, we see this year in and year out. And the other thing, frankly, that happens at this time of year is uh, Thunder Bay opens back up. So that tends to take a little bit of stress off the Vancouver corridor and provides a different outlet for grain. So you put all of those things together and performance tends to improve at this time of year. And the last thing, of course, is we generally are, depending on you know market conditions, of course, but generally speaking, we are beyond uh, the peak uh, shipping season and we're now seeing volumes slow down somewhat as we work our way towards the summer and then the next harvest. So improved operating conditions along with, you know, lower demand, if you will, is going to help railway performance. But Poirier is not seeing a decline in rail car demand just yet. So far, nothing significant. We are starting to see a little bit of change in the mix. Thunder Bay obviously being the biggest influence on that. But we've already seen traffic volumes start to ramp up. You know, they were moving almost no cars through the winter into Thunder Bay for good reason, because there was no vessels coming to Thunder Bay. 
But over the last couple of weeks, orders from shippers have ramped up. And I think uh, the last three weeks, we've been somewhere between 1,400 and 1,600 cars a week ordered for the Thunder Bay corridor. So that's a very clear sign that, you know, Thunder Bay is going to reopen and traffic patterns are going to shift a little bit. But overall, no, demand is still steady, I guess, for want of a better term. And I would expect over the next six weeks that it will actually start to decline. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. His comments come from the Grain by Train podcast produced by Pulse Canada, who is a member of the Ag Transport Coalition. It's time now for the Commodities Update, and that's a presentation of Lane Realty. When it's time to sell the farm, call Lane Realty, your trusted and experienced farmland real estate company. To include your property for showings, call 620-7260 or visit lanerealty.com. Commodities Update. Canola futures closed up across the board today. May canola closed at 7.53.20, up $9.80. July canola closed at 7.42.10, up $14.70. May Minneapolis wheat is still trading at 8.71 and three quarters this hour. That's up 14 and a quarter cents. May Kansas City wheat trading at 8.60 and a quarter, up 12 and a quarter cents. May Chicago wheat trading at 6.98 per bushel, up nine and a half cents. May corn trading uh, closed at 6.48 and a quarter, that's up five and a quarter cents. May soybeans closed at 14.42 and a quarter, up 14 cents. May oats closed at 3.77 and a quarter, up eight and three quarters of a cent. And that's the Commodities Update. The Executive Director of the Swine Health Information Center says the latest developments with regards to African swine fever are a reminder of the need to remain vigilant in North America. The Swine Health Information Center's March Global Swine Disease Surveillance Report indicates the first outbreak of African swine fever has been reported in Singapore, making it the 17th nation in Asia to be affected since the first confirmation of ASF in China in 2018 and the eighth case of ASF in domestic pigs was found in Brandenburg, Germany. Dr. Paul Sundberg has the latest. Well, African swine fever continues to circulate in Eastern Europe, especially in um, their wild boar population. It's certainly a lesson that we have to learn as we look forward to our prevention our preparedness and our response. Um, hopefully we can prevent it, but if we can't, uh, we have to learn lessons from Eastern Europe and from Southeast Asia. Um, there is a new outbreak in Eastern Germany in domestic pigs. It's a small holding. I think there are only 11 pigs on the farm, but it's a small holding that 
possibly had contact with feral pigs, and they're still doing the epidemiology and the outbreak investigation on that. But it's an example of the ability for this virus to be um, harbored in the wild pig population and uh, for its spillover into domestic pigs. Um, ASF is a disease of pigs. It's not a food safety issue, but it can be transmitted if a pig comes into contact with uh, another pig's carcass that died from ASF, and that's what happens in in the wild uh, or feral pig population, or if um, it comes into contact with a food product that was prepared from a pig that had died from ASF. So um, ASF is still moving around Eastern Europe. It is um, also in in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, there's been develop- further developments and testing of vaccines in Vietnam, which have been promising. Um, but we're looking at ASF as a continual pressure on the borders of North America. And we certainly have to do everything we can do to prevent it and be prepared for that. He explains how the outbreak in Singapore changes the overall situation. That's an example of the continued ongoing spread and continued pressure of this virus epidemiologically. It's in a variety of different countries in Southeast Asia, and that continues to move. It is a, it's a virus that moves with deliberate motion. It doesn't move fast, but it moves deliberately, and it continues to do such. Introduction of the virus into countries like Singapore, like into the Philippines, um, uh, like into other countries in Southeast Asia, demonstrate the importance of closing windows of, of movement of that virus. Probably not from movement of infected pigs, but most probably from movement of infected products. If a pork product, which isn't a food safety issue for people, if a sandwich is made from the meat of a pig that has been infected with ASF, if another pig gets in contact with that, then that contact pig can be infected with it. So that's probably the way that it moves between countries, unless you have borders with other countries that have wild pigs that don't uh, respect international borders, of course. Dr. Sundberg notes there's been some vaccine development progress to report. There still is testing going on, commercial testing of going on a vaccine in uh, Vietnam. And the reports that I've gotten from that is that they have been um, uh, successful in that they've shown to be safe, they've shown to be effective and helpful in decreasing the spread of ASF. So those are good things. There was some question about the ASF vaccine initially uh, and about its safety, but I think the Vietnamese um, Department of Animal Agriculture, Department of Animal Health uh, answered those, and those tests continue to happen in, in Vietnam. It is not without restriction, however. Um, that virus that is being tested in Vietnam would be very challenging to produce in uh, volume enough to be able to use it outside of regional use in Vietnam. It's difficult to propagate the virus. This um, vaccine uses uh, pig 
white blood cells to uh, propagate the virus, and that means there's limitation on its production, and therefore it's got limits in its uh, volume of production as well as its um, outcomes when you vaccinate pigs. One of the things about this virus is that it's not able to be differentiated antibody-wise in the pig that's either been vaccinated or been infected with ASF, um, there's no difference in the antibodies. You can't tell the difference in the antibodies. So that's an important technical piece that has to be solved as well. So things are still moving with vaccine production, vaccine trials, and, um, and, and vaccine research. It's still a long road, though, and we don't have the satisfactory end of that uh, tunnel yet that we can get to to say we've got a safe, effective, and and uh, uh, responsible vaccine that we can deploy worldwide. And he had these final comments. It's worthy of mentioning that ASF continues to be in um, on the island of Hispaniola and in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, USDA has gone down there and offered support with a variety of different um, programs of diagnostics, of of indemnification to help support eradication. Um, however, um, it still remains on that island. And it sounds like it's going to be there in, for quite a while into the future. So the policy issues of of eradication and indemnification on the island have to evolve and they are evolving such that we've got to look at ways that we can uh, ensure that we keep the virus on that island and and uh, as the responsibility of the Dominican Republic and Haiti um, to address and hopefully sometime in the future they'll be able to do that. But in the near term, certainly in the near term, midterm and possibly farther term. Um, we're going to be dealing with ASF on Hispaniola for quite a while. Dr. Paul Sundberg is the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will return in one minute's time. Farm Bulletin Board. Just a quick note that the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association riding for the brand fundraising auction is now open and it will close Wednesday at 6 o'clock Saskatchewan time. They'd like to thank their partners, sponsors and members for their kind donations of items, gift certificates, products and services. So once again, that riding for the brand fundraising auction is now open. It's now 1 o'clock. That means it's time for the GX94 Precision Weather Forecast. For the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Moosom, and Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. Partly sunny, winds west-southwest at 10 to 20, and a high of minus 12 degrees. For tonight, partly clear, winds west-northwest at 10 and a low of minus 23. For tomorrow, a mix of sun and cloud. Winds west-northwest at 10 to 20, a high of minus 11. Wednesday, partly sunny. Winds west-southwest at 15 to 25, and a high of minus 4. For Thursday, a 40% chance of flurries, a high of minus 3. And Friday, mainly cloudy, a high of minus 5. 
In the Paw, Dauphin and Brandon, it's minus 12 degrees. Swan River is at minus 13. Show Lake Russell and Roblin, minus 14. Regina is at minus 16. Saskatoon and Hudson Bay, minus 12. Broadview Mooseman, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington, minus 14. Indian Head, minus 15. In the Yorkton-Melville region, we have a sunny sky, a northeast wind at 4 kilometers an hour, 65% is the relative humidity, the temperature is minus 16 degrees, with the wind chill it feels more like minus 19 degrees. That's your agriculture weather and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune again in again tomorrow at 12.15 Saskatchewan time for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.